Alex Balash is the Intuit chief architect and has been working at the company for almost 20 years. Intuit's products include QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. These applications are used to file taxes, manage business invoices, conduct personal accounting, and other critical aspects of a user's financial life. Because the applications are for managing money for users, there is not much room for error. When Intuit was started, the company made desktop software. In his time at Intuit, Alex played a key role in re-architecting the monolithic desktop applications to be resilient, reliable web applications. Intuit originally managed the software on their own servers. Since then, Intuit has migrated to the cloud using AWS. Alex joins the show to discuss his experience scaling Intuit, his strategy for cloud migration, and his evaluation for criteria of questions of build versus buy. It was a great episode covering a whole lot of history as well as modern software architecture. And hopefully can have Alex back on the show at some point to discuss some of these subjects in more detail. The Find Collabs Open has started. This is our second Find Collabs hackathon. You can find out about it by going to findcollabs.com slash open. The prizes at Find Collabs Open are $250 category prizes for things such as the best machine learning project, the best React.js project, the best cryptocurrency project, the best computer game or game design. You can find all those details at findcollabs.com open. Find Collabs is the company I'm building. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. I would love to see you in the Find Collabs Open. And if you have any suggestions or feedback on the product, you can email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Alex Balaj, you are the chief architect at Intuit. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to talking through some of Intuit's architecture. You've been there for, I think, 20 years? Is that right? Yeah, almost 20 years, since 1999. Okay, so that is a a long time, and I'd like to start with some high-level discussion of of Intuit's product line, then we'll get into the engineering. Describe the different products that you help with the architecture of today. Yeah, absolutely. So Intuit's mission, which was recently refreshed, is to power prosperity around the world. And one of the cool things about that mission is that it's pretty open. Prosperity isn't necessarily something that you can measure concretely. It's something more about how people feel. Do they feel prosperous? And so our flagship products of TurboTax, QuickBooks, and Mint are certainly a great start. So they are financial products that help our customers, whether those customers are consumers, self-employed, or small business owners, to feel more prosperous. But one of the really cool things that's going on at Intuit is that we're kind of growing out of our roots as a, as a product company, still remaining customer obsessed, but really becoming a platform and data company. So as you think about Intuit's product line going forward, certainly we will continue to maintain the, the amazing products we already have, but there's a lot planned in terms of uh, Intuit becoming this platform company. You've been there for a long time. What are the canonical problems in the Intuit engineering stack that were present in the early days that, that still exist today? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. The main problem that Intuit has been approaching is is around finances. 
And, you know, it started in, in the early 1980s when Scott Cook founded Intuit, when he saw his wife uh, struggling to balance the checkbook. And that represented what the first, what we call a follow me home. So Scott pioneered the idea of the follow me home, which basically, I know it sounds really creepy, <laughs> but basically what it means is we want to see how people experience finances and money in their own environment, not inside of our labs. And so obviously we have usability labs where we test some of our new software, or we do a lot of it obviously online in terms of beta testing. But one of the best ways to really understand your customers to actually go to their environment and see what they do in their environment. And and so, you know, the canonical problems that we've been solving is really helping our customers understand their financial situation. And it's such an amazingly nuanced thing. It's not a one size fits all approach. And so to some degree, it's almost amazing that we were able to create software. Scott, in the early days, was able to create software in the 80s based in DOS. And then, you know, through the 90s, Windows. And then in 1999, when I was hired, I was part of the the first team to actually put QuickBooks online. So when I joined in 99, QuickBooks was 100% desktop. Uh, TurboTax was about 99% desktop. But, you know, the, the problems that we're looking to solve is, is these nuanced problems around finances. So how much money do I have coming in? Where am I spending my money? And how do I predict the future? And so the great opportunity for us is that as much as we were in a position to solve these problems 10, 15 years ago, in the age of AI, in the age of, of predictive analytics and, and machine learning, we can do an even better job of, of predicting people's finances and helping them and so it's 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 kind of the same canonical problem that we were solving 20, 25 years ago. This issue of moving a client application onto the cloud is something that have, I've talked to a few people about, but basically many different companies have, have, have dealt with this. Like uh, I think Microsoft dealt with it with Visual Code or Visual Code, whatever their IDE is. I think that thing is in the cloud now, or Excel. Like I think Excel is in the cloud now. Yeah, Adobe but, is a great example. All yeah, the Adobe tools. Yeah, totally. Photoshop. How hard is that to do? <laughs> or like, what do you have to do? How do how do you go from like a monolithic server side or client side thing to like breaking up this monolith and moving it into the cloud? Yeah. So unfortunately, the first step that you almost always take in, in going from a monolithic desktop app is to get to a monolithic web app. <laughs> and so some of the early generations of the products that Intuit developed online in the late 90s and early 2000s were pretty monolithic. They were pretty much direct representations of the desktop products. And so you know the challenge that comes is, is now working in a distributed world. So there's so much power and value that you get in terms of consistency of how you build when everything is enforced by the linker and the compiler. And now suddenly you work in a distributed world where you have microservices and you have fine-grained experiences and you have widgets and you have composite applications and all, all of that. And, and so managing that complexity while still uh, uh, enabling your organization to move fast is the biggest challenge. And so you know, I would say that Doing software architecture in a desktop world is something that you can maybe kind of do once and then you just reap the fruits of the, of the labor. Distributed architecture in a SaaS world, in a platform world, is vastly different because it requires you to be really agile about how you think about architecture. And so the same way that software development itself is agile, you have to be agile about architecture 
and adapt and grow as the software changes. As and so we we are constantly in the business of thinking about our architectural decomposition as business capabilities. Like what are the business capabilities that we're exposing? And so in a world of desktop, it was simple. So you had this product and then the product had features and then you and you figured out what it was and you released it. In the world of online delivering these products, it's more about what business capabilities do you want to expose? And then what's the technical architecture to deliver those business capabilities? And so it's a challenge, but it's fun. I mean, I think it's one of the funnest parts of the job. I did an interview recently with the Airtable CEO, and Airtable. I don't. Have you heard that company at all? Have you looked no, at? No, unfortunately, it? I haven't. Okay, no. so Airtable is kind of like a modern spreadsheet slash low code system, and they're pretty popular. But in in order to make to get the performance that they wanted out of this, uh, basically, a, you know, a, a web spreadsheet, and in order to compete, they are a serious viable competitor to Google Sheets, which is which is kind of incredible. But the way that they got there was they actually had to build their own JavaScript framework. They had to build their own database, like they literally built from scratch a database to handle a spreadsheet. And you know, it just kind of made me really think, you know. How performant are the web applications that we're using today? Because like a spreadsheet is kind of like the iconic dynamic web application. And it just makes me think like how much more performant can things get? Like maybe maybe we're just in this like infancy where things are going to feel so uh, so much faster in the future. Yeah, absolutely. We are constantly on a journey to try to figure out what are the parts of the stack that are the most critical for us to own versus use from somewhere else to actually deliver the experience to our customers that they want. And when you do that analysis, there's kind of a functional view that says, well, you know, we're in the business of finances. So we're, you know, we have an accounting engine and we have a, a personal finance engine, but then there's, there's an element of it in terms of the implicit requirements that our customers have in terms of the quality attributes of the system. And certainly performance is one of them. And, you know, the problem with frameworks is that they're frameworks and they're designed for many. And if that's not the differentiating part of your stack, frameworks really work really well. If it is the differentiating part of your stack, then you may have to actually build something on your own because it, in fact, is one of the most important things that you do. And so for us, for example, in the world of TurboTax, you know, TurboTax is basically a big declarative system. It's, it encodes the knowledge of the U.S. tax system uh, in a big declarative system. And so you could think about it and say, well, that's just a rules engine. So let's go take a rules engine off the shelf and just encode the rules. And in order to get to the performance that we want, the, the, the speed that our customers expect, we actually couldn't do that. We ran certain scenarios, we ran certain tests, and it didn't work out. And so we decided that one of the core things to our business is, in fact, the way that we build this tax engine that allows us to encode the tax law as content. And so I think what you'll see is that the performance of online TurboTax every year gets better and better as the product actually becomes more and more complicated in terms of the personalization. Fascinating. So it, by doing that basically declarative syntax for describing how TurboTax works, I can see that even having additional benefits because I was wondering about you know, the fact that you need such domain expertise for, like, computerizing taxes, 
I can imagine like adding an additional kind of interpretability layer or perhaps like like that would give you like a, a great space to kind of collaborate between domain specific experts and engineers. Yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, you know, that's that's the key. You know, if you think back about the early days of the internet, everything was in code, right? The user experience was in code. Maybe everything except the data was in the code. And then what you do is you try to you start to say, well, if I want to deliver this amazing experience to my customers, what kind of experts do I need? And so the first kinds of experts that we exposed in our systems were designers. And we said, well, what if we separated the way that designers create content and actually meld that together with the software? Okay, great. But then as you think about these software systems becoming more and more intelligent, more and more lifelike and the ability to encode different types of knowledge, then you say, well, there's other kinds of experts. And some of these experts are tax experts. So, you know, one of the things that that we take pride in is our ability to create the right tooling and engines that actually allow us to work with these domain experts to actually encode their knowledge into the software. Many companies that have been around for 20 plus years or around 20 years or, or even a shorter time, 10 years, they're either making the transition to becoming a software company or they have been a software company. There's a smaller subset of, of those companies that have been a software company the whole time. Intuit is a software company, but you cross the chasm into the post-cloud world. How do you use cloud providers or how do you think about your consumption or your strategy around cloud? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, in terms of before what I was talking about, that's evaluation that we do that we call core versus context. So, you know, what is core to the business? What What is differentiating? Why are we going to win? And to us, what is context? And so, therefore, what do we want to take advantage of some of the best builders out there? Um, cloud is definitely one of those huge enablers. And so, you know, Intuit, like many other companies 15 years ago, was in the data center business. And so we had our own data centers. And, you know, most of these, in fact, we just very recently are, are starting to shut down. But in terms of our Kudos. journey, you know, we... Kudos, by the way, we, that's tough. Yeah, it is tough. It is tough. But, you know, we developed a, a great strategic partnership with AWS. And Amazon has been a, an amazing partner. And so over the course of the, the past... So, you know, our, our cloud journey uh, started about seven, eight years ago. Went into OverDrive probably about three years ago. And now every major Intuit product is running on the public cloud, including all of the data. And so uh, it's been an amazing partnership, an amazing journey. You know, for us, the ability to scale up and scale down, you can, you can imagine that TurboTax is probably one of the peakiest businesses that exists. You know, other than maybe Black Friday for some of the, the e-commerce retailers, for us, April 15th, which we just, we just hit April 15th, you know, it, to sit there and look at the dials, to look at the load coming in when you own the hardware and you know what your maximum capacity is. And so basically you have a bunch of contingencies in place. Like, okay, what contingencies am I going to pull should something happen? Or what contingencies do I pull during our Super Bowl commercial, right? In the world of the public cloud, you just scale up, right? And then when you're done, you scale down. And so certainly infrastructure as a service has been a huge win for us. And then now what we're really doing is diving even deeper deeper into, into platform as a service. So some of the managed services in AWS and continuing to partner with them 
to help us with these managed services. And, you know, really the way we look at it, it's, you know, funny, funny to think about it that way because Amazon is such a, so much more of a bigger company than Intuit, but we almost view them as like a, an outsourced part of Intuit, right? Because the partnership is so deep and they're such a, they're customer obsessed the way that we're customer obsessed. They're a, a great engineering company the way that we're a great engineering company. And so it's, it's fun to partner with them. Does that hard dependency scare you at all? In terms of being dependent on AWS, not really, not really. I mean, you, you look at, I think that you always get something and you give something, right? And so for, for us, we, we believe that the, the, the partnership that we have with, with Amazon will allow us to move faster and to deliver more. And then the truth of the matter is, is that technology moves so fast and your need to refactor and redevelop code and rewrite code is growing, right? So the days of, okay, I'm going to ship something and then I'll plan to rewrite it 10 years from now or something like that. You just can't do that anymore, right? So you're constantly in the mode of saying, how do I do this better? How do I do this faster? How do I rewrite this? How do I decompose this in even simpler ways? And so in that world, we're constantly looking to refresh our stack anyway. And so whether that refresh continues to happen in AWS or someday in the distant future, it's not AWS, it really doesn't scare us because you know, that's that's kind of the, the game that we're in. Yeah, I mean this whole multi cloud conversation, I don't I don't know how to feel about it because like we only have one JavaScript package manager, right? We have NPM. That's it. And yeah, a vulnerability can make it into the NPM supply chain. You know, we can have uh, vulnerabilities make it into hardware supply chain. We can have vulnerabilities exist in package managers. We can have zero days in our operating systems. I mean, it, it, you always have to ask this question, where, like, what are the places where I'm going to put redundancy in? And I just, I don't know if this whole multi-cloud thing is one of these things that we want to worry about. I am honestly undecided. Yeah, you know, at some point you have to trust something, <laughs> right? Right, totally, uh, the power grid. And, and so, yeah, and so we, we, we have to make those choices and whether those choices are ones on security and, and what do we do about it, what are our contingencies, uh, whether it's availability, we are constantly wargaming, we're constantly planning, we're constantly looking at the contrarian view on everything. Like, we, like TurboTax has to be up on April 15th. You know, r- right now, small businesses across the world are depending on QuickBooks Online being available always, right? And so, you know, understanding the failure points of your software and planning contingencies, whether they be architectural contingencies or runtime contingencies, is something that we're constantly doing. And so we just have to evaluate, like, what are the top things? Because we can't attack everything. And for us, you know, multi-cloud right now is, is, has not gone above that threshold. That peak time, the April 15th peak time, is how hard is that to architect for even in in the cloud? Like, is it just a matter of like, is it really easy or are there still like little weird edge cases that, that are kind of tricky to configure? Yeah, there's there's always edge cases. I would say that the TurboTax team is amazing. You know, I had the, the great privilege of being the chief architect of the consumer group for six years, which includes TurboTax. It's an amazing organization. It's an operational machine in terms of getting ready for tax season and executing during tax season and the rigor around how we create the content and how we secure the data and everything. It's a, it's an amazing software operational machine. I think at some point we should write a book about it. 
But when you get into the nuances of hosting on the cloud, it's still complicated, right? Because you have to, despite all the amazing, amazing advancements that you know AWS and GCP and others have made, there's still startup time, right? There's still hardware involved. Uh, there's still the bootstrapping time of systems coming up. And so, you know, being tweaking it the right way so that you understand as the growth curve is coming, how early do you scale up? How late do you scale down? Making sure that you've got all your balancing, you know, you still have networks to deal with. So load balancing continues to be one of the biggest things that we are constantly testing. Do we have the right load balancing rules? Do we have the right failover rules? Do we have the right health checks in place? What are your third-party dependencies like? So you scale yourself up, but then you have these third-party dependencies. Can they scale? What are the right patterns that you have in place in terms of containing the blast radius should a, should a software failure happen so that either a degraded performance or slightly degraded performance or no customer impact at all, but certainly not a complete outage. And so there's pretty well understood playbooks on what to do, but it's still, it's still a, a complicated science. You know, the other thing that gives me some comfort in the Amazon space is, so I, I worked there for eight months, and I th- my I think my time there overlapped with either a Black Friday or a, one of these Prime Day things. What's nice about Amazon is they kind of have the built-in peak testing, like, because they're going to get slammed with traffic on, you know, Prime Day or on Black Friday, it's like, cool, well, Amazon can at least handle their peak. Yeah, Absolutely. The great test case, like you said, for Amazon Web Services is Amazon.com. And and knowing that nearly all the services have already been either pre-vetted by Amazon.com or actually have been decomposed out of Amazon.com and become part of Amazon Web Services is definitely a plus. You know, one of the other cool things that Amazon uh, does is there are times where we say, well, how does Amazon.com use this managed service? And they'll say, well, you want to talk to them? Wow. And then we'll just physically go talk to them. Wow, right? that's so cool. They'll, they'll, they'll set those things up. Hmm. So do you think of Amazon or AWS as kind of like how you would think about maybe like Spring Framework back in the day? Yeah, you know, the layer of abstraction from software that Amazon or the cloud in general, I mean, what, it, what the cloud is doing is it's slowly commoditizing the stack, right? And... So you start off at the bare bones at compute and storage, compute storage and network, right? At the, at the, at the lowest level, everything is compute storage and network. And then you kind of build on top and you build on top and you build on top. And so, so yeah, I mean, to, to us, you know, it's about finding that right layer of abstraction and, and thinking about it as like a, a spring framework. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is. We want to point our engineers at solving the customer problems that we have as a company. And that doesn't mean that we don't solve hard technology problems. We do. We solve really hard technology problems. We talked about some of them already in terms of like a tax engine and so on and so forth. But if there are technology problems that we don't need to solve, we don't solve them, right? We, we, we let others solve them. And I think it's one of the characteristics of a great technology organization is that great engineers want to solve problems that haven't been solved yet. Yeah, agreed. And what's interesting about the, cl- the cloud provider competition, people call it competition, you know, this is a gigantic growing space. There's a lot of pie. Pie is growing very quickly. But we are moving into this time where you're starting to see services that are differentiated. Like, they are no longer commodity ones. Or even, like, you, you have the question raised as to, you know, who is who is the best at running Kubernetes? Or does it actually matter? Like, it, does this matter that much? You know, who has the best service mesh? Have there been any, like, 
services that have really surprised you that are like less less of a commodity where you see like the clouds kind of differentiating on their points? You know, maybe manage Let, manage TensorFlow or anything like got that. It. You know, I think all the cloud providers are pretty aware of each other. <laughs> I think that there's reasons why you would pick one cloud provider versus another. For us, Amazon is the right choice. It's a combination of the of the capability they have plus the the partnership that we've developed with them. You know, at this point, I don't see anything that is differentiating in that way that would get us to to say, well, we're going to go this way or that way. I'd like to talk about data infrastructure because Intuit has a ton of data. Both the OLTP and the OLAP queries within uh, Intuit seem really complicated. So I would think of an OLT, uh, online transaction processing query, like I'm a user, perhaps I'm I'm uh, opening up QuickBooks and I have to load, if you're QuickBooks, you have to load all these balances for the user. And so that's an OLTP transaction that could be kind of complicated because there's a ton of data you could potentially fetch. You could prefetch stuff aggressively. Uh, you could be more lazy about it. But also on the OLAP side, the online analytic processing, if you want to do data science on the back end, if you want to present reports to people all the time, you've got a ton of problems there to solve as well. Tell me about how you think about data infrastructure. You know, I think the most important thing to, to, to start with in terms of addressing that is those use cases that you called out are all very different. They're very different in terms of the data they require. They're different in terms of their call patterns. They're different in terms of where the data is and how far you have to go to get it. And so as part of our data infrastructure, uh, we want to make sure that it's almost like you're, you're trying to support two competing models. Right, because in the simplest sense, oh, we're going to have a microservices architecture. Great. So there's books on this, right? Go get the O'Reilly book on microservices architecture, right? And so, okay, this is how you decompose services, and then each service has its own database, and then this is how you design its data, and da 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 da. And then from an OLTP perspective, those systems work fairly fairly well, right? They're performant, they're reliable. You can build failover patterns, you can make them highly available, so on and so forth. But then you get to the point where you, want, you have a data analyst and your analyst wants to do analytics over multiple different data sources across 15 or 20 or 30 different microservices. So now you're talking about lake architectures and you're talking about analytical stores and you're talking about aggregated data. And so, I mean, going back to the cloud conversation, in the days before the cloud, you basically had to build expertise, local expertise in managing many different types of data infrastructure whether it's Oracle databases or MySQL databases on the OLTP side to whatever it might be on the analytics side, you first had to build expertise in the data infrastructure on how to set it up, how to operate it, how to monitor it, how to move data through pipelines, so on and so forth. And so what we are being very deliberate about is understanding the different call flows that are required for, I would say, the three primary kinds of workflows. One is the OLTP, the second is the analytics, and the third is to support the ever-evolving AI uh, machine learning platform. And so the technology choices that you make in each of those places has to be different. You have to get really good at moving data around. You have to get very good at uh, understanding taxonomy and ontology. You have to get very good at understanding consistency of things like data governance, because you know, aside from uh, the CCPA and the European regulations around privacy, 
know, privacy is, is job number one per into it, privacy and security based on the data that we have. And so it's one thing to secure a database that is accessed by one microservice and, and to secure it and make sure it's private and to implement data governance. But to do it now in this distributed environment, you have to enforce consistent data governance across all of those things, no matter what the touch point is, no matter where the data is stored. And so from a data infrastructure perspective, technology choices are important. How you move data is important. And then finally, how you govern and keep the data private and secure is important. And so those are all things that we think about as we design and and implement our data infrastructure. Okay, there's a ton there to unpack, but I want to start with the auditability question because you need to be bulletproof in your ability to go back and and audit yourself like if if a customer says like hey like this is really weird why does this balance happen you know you want to be able to kind of like roll back the like the transaction the append only transaction log and i mean i've talked to companies that that you know say they're trying to work on on machine learning auditability and data auditability and it seems like a very very hard problem and many of these companies are are dealing with stuff that's way less sensitive than like the financial transaction world so you're probably at the forefront of this you certainly have the incentive to be in the forefront of this how realistic is it to build auditability into these systems i think that's one of the things that for what we talked about before in terms of is the innovation it's the core part of the Intuit business is to actually be good at that. And you know, one of the one of the best examples that I can give you is that five years ago, when if you go through the process of TurboTax and you either got some kind of deduction or you didn't get some kind of deduction, or you some type of income was taxable and some kind of income was not taxable, or you were itemized versus a, a standard deduction filer, we couldn't tell you why. The the engine would calculate it, but it couldn't tell you why. And so one of the, the amazing innovations that we actually have in our, in our knowledge engine, which backs TurboTax today, is that it can actually explain it to you it can, using your own data. It can say, you are an itemized filer because. So whatever rules that we have in place, whatever data that you gave us that, were, that allowed us to make a decision, we can explain it to you. And so explainable knowledge engineering is kind of the step one for us. And then obviously, you know, one of the holy grails <laughs> that's going on right now is exp- explainable ML. So there's a lot, actually a couple startups out there, many startups out there working on ex- explainable models. And, you know, that those are areas that we're going into as well to really make sure that there's full visibility. Our customers have full visibility into the decisions that the software makes on their behalf and to understand scenarios of, well, what happens? What happens if I remove this? What happens if I change this? You know, doing these kind of those what if scenarios. So, you know, going back to the original thing that we talked about, about powering prosperity for our customers. If you're affluent, you go to a financial planner, a a physical human being who does a lot of what if scenarios for you. What about everyone else? Right? What if the software could do those what if scenarios for you? What if the software not only had the auditability, it also had the traceability of what you gave us, what we did, and to provide different scenarios. What if we could just show you immediately, this is what your refund would be if you took the standard deduction. This is what your refund would be if you did the itemized deduction. Right? And so those are the things that people want, sometimes want that visibility, and sometimes they don't. 
right? And that's that's one of the challenges too is to is to provide that capability in a way that you deliver it to the customers who want it and you don't deliver it to the customers who don't want it. And so, you know, I would say that we are in varying degrees of maturity uh, as it relates to providing that capability, but it is something that is definitely top of mind for us. So tell me about some different tool selections. Like we're in this world where we've got a buffet of different options for building this data infrastructure. We can choose cloud databases, Snowflake managed proprietary data warehousing. We can use Spark. We can use managed Spark. We can use Kafka. We can use managed Kafka. You know, how do you choose these different data infrastructure decisions? Yeah, I think this is one of the places where software architecture truly comes into form. You know, I've always said that the further back you are in the stack, the more important the architecture is, and the further front you are in the stack, the less important architecture is. And so now when you're in the way, way back, and you're inside the data infrastructure, making sure that you build things using certain patterns that allow you to apply the right technology at the right time, I think is more critical than any individual technology choice that you would make. And so, for example, when you brought up Kafka, this is certainly one of the aspects of moving from a desktop kind of engineering culture to an online connected culture, which is synchronous versus asynchronous, right? And in your back end, moving towards uh, asynchronous interactions is absolutely critical. Moving towards messaging infrastructure, uh, topic-based infrastructure for data, absolutely critical. Your ability to create, use messaging and streaming to create a curation pipeline that allows you to curate data in the right way, to build the right data sources, using the right technology for the right purpose is critical. So, you know, we spend uh, quite a bit of time, you know, my team, in fact, directly spends quite a bit of time figuring out what are the right variability points that we want to create in our data infrastructure to support that myriad of technologies that you just described. So to make sure that we can actually choose the right technology at the right time. Once you do choose the right technology, certainly one of the considerations is, do I have to operate this technology or can I rely on a cloud provider to deliver it to me? And so certainly we have a bias towards ones that can be operated for us as long as we believe they can deliver on the, on the non-functional requirements that, that we need. And then if, if we don't, if, if we can't use that, then certainly you know, running our own data infrastructure in, in, in a cloud compute environment is a secondary option. Right. Uh, and what are the spaces where you've had to do that? Like I can think the one that stands out to me is like Airflow. There's this, you know, the workflow orchestration tool that uh, seems to have not been really offered as a service much by the cloud providers to the extent that I understand it. What are the places where you have to, to spin up your own open source infrastructure on cloud infrastructure? There's different tech. I, I don't think I, I want to call out like specific ones because they change over time. But I think that uh, we want to make sure that we're always running on the best tech. And for us, the best tech to run is open source that can be managed by a cloud provider. So for example, Kafka, we could operate our own Kafka or we can use Kafka as a managed service on AWS, right? So I would say that we're, we're constantly evaluating open source projects as trial standards, standards and experiments, sorry, we refer to them as standards and experiment, to learn and say, is it better to do this or is it better to use the current standard that we have? And so in terms of what those things are, 
certainly any type of data technology that's out there is in any way mainstream. We're trying to figure out whether or not we can apply it. Anything in the in the in the ML world, we're trying to figure out if we can apply it. And so, you know, the reason that I, I probably can't give you a specific answer is because we're constantly running those types of experiments. And so I would say that the bias is towards, boy, it'd be nice if I didn't have to worry about this, but I will choose the things that I, I will worry about and 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 run with the best. So why does that bias lead you in the direction of open source? So for example, you know, you ha- you could obviously run Kubernetes as a managed service today, and and in in many cases, that's that will make a lot of sense for people. But there's also these managed container instances, which to me, a- as a developer, like these things look like better abstractions to work within. Like, why would I want to manage the Kubernetes orchestration layer when I can hand that off to the cloud provider and just work directly with container instances like Fargate or ACI? From the point of view of an architect, how do you evaluate like the Kubernetes, you know, managed service versus the long-lived container instances plus like AWS Lambda architectural models? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So, uh, so I talked about the model that we have of core versus context, and there's actually something in between. <laughs> and the thing that's in between is open source. And the times where we would choose something like Kubernetes is when we believe that we have the expertise and need to have the expertise to actually not just consume that open source, but actually contribute to it as well. And if we believe that the pace at which we're moving, we want to have more control over the compute environment, because maybe it's, it's not as mature as you'd like it to be, or maybe it's missing some kind of capability that we need, or maybe it, it isn't exactly... Um, configured the right way or doesn't provide the configuration the right way that we want, or we just think that there's a better and faster way to do it, then you know we'll invest. So we view that as an investment. And so the things you invest in the most that is core to you, you just build from scratch. The things that you are, are next important to you, you invest in open source. And then the things that you believe you can just consume as commodity, you just acquire through a cloud provider. And so you know that's that's the evaluation that we go through. And We've been on different parts of our journey with AWS where, for example, we, we started something ourselves where we actually built it and operated it on AWS. And then over the course of time, AWS matured its capabilities, and so we actually moved to consuming it from AWS. And so we are evaluating that spectrum all the time. But for us, it really comes down to control. So as this quote-unquote service mesh entity discussion has come to the forefront of of software architecture this idea that there is something new in the idea of of having a a proxy layer plus a control plane that does load balancing and and canarying and security policy management and so so on how have you responded architecturally to the different the different offerings the different kind of visions that that people are portraying as the future of service mesh how is that fitting into your your architectural strategy, or are you just sitting out for a bit? No, I mean th- we're we're, de- we're definitely not sitting out at this point. So you know, historically, we've had very much a north south architecture as it relates to services and gateways and things like that. And then you know, probably about a year and a half ago ish, we really started to investigate deeply the idea of a service mesh mesh to allow more east west kind of routing and and a little bit more kind of autonomous point-to-point communication as opposed to going back through the control tier 
And so we have a, a team whose responsibility is to deliver that infrastructure this, that we call it our services fabric uh, for all for our entire microservices strategy for Intuit. And you know the, the good news is they were they were on top of it. They did deep evaluations of what what happens if we do it ourselves. What happens if we do some kind of cloud native? And what happens if we just consume it from AWS? We've got certain trials ongoing right now across that spectrum. And at this point, we haven't fully made a decision as to what direction we're going to go. But we do believe that an, a, a, that service mesh is a very powerful way for us to continue to maximize our spend, to, to maximize our cloud investment. And it's also a way to really maximize scalability, to allow autonomous units of, of, of capability delivery to be scaled independently without a lot of worry about, okay, what, what, what else do I have to scale when I scale this thing? And so, you know, I think the team's come up with a pretty good approach for how to me- meld together kind of the north-south routing and the east-west routing as it relates to, to services gateways versus services mesh. I'm confident in the, in, the, in the next couple of months, you know, we will probably be, be rolling it out more broadly. I can see the strain or the tension in how you might approach this architecturally right now because, you know, on the one hand, App Mesh looks like a great solution for what w- the direction you're going in. On the other hand, Istio might win despite the fact that Istio seems to have been released and promoted a little bit aggressively. You know, it may not quite be ready for production yet, but, you know, if if the container orchestration wars are any indication, probably Istio is going to win. Then maybe, like, does AppMesh turn into a hosted Istio? Like, hard to know, you know, hard to foresee. You know, people are still running Amazon ECS, I believe. I don't think Amazon ECS is, like, can easily be migrated to Kubernetes, or maybe it can, I don't really know. But like, basically, if we map the container orchestration wars to the service mesh wars, well, I mean, it's hard to see Istio losing. I don't know. How do you evaluate? Is, 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 this, is this the container orchestration wars all over again? Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing about disruption, so when you, there's, you can think about things like business disruption of where uh, a company does A well, and then another company comes and they do A well, and so then they compete with each other. But then another company, a third company comes along and they do B, and B makes A obsolete, right? And that's the kind of disruption that you're like, oh, crap, what do I do now, <laughs> right? right? And so when you think about Istio and what it's doing and, and kind of the container war, you know, it's, these are things that are, it would be great if every innovation that came out that you consume would be all just purely additive. But unfortunately, they're not. Right, they they tend to overlap because they don't just make the current paradigm better. Sometimes they completely blow up the paradigm and define a completely different paradigm. And you know, I think cloud obviously was one of those paradigms. You know, Intel spent a lot of time telling us that Intel inside is the most important thing, and then Amazon told us it doesn't matter what's inside. Yeah. And so that's a classic disruption. And so you know, is this going to be more like the container? I don't know. I don't know. So you know, we we want to be aggressive in our pursuit of the best technology to solve the problems that we have. But we also want to be careful to make sure that we don't bet on something too soon. Are you experimenting with Knative at all? We are. We actually, about a year and a half ago, we bought a little company called Aplatix. And Aplatix 
was building some uh, infrastructure tooling around Kubernetes. And so we've developed uh, a team that has quite a bit of expertise around Kubernetes. And so now as we think about Knative and, and what it can do for us, as I said before, we have a strong bias towards open source. We have a strong bias towards technologies that we know, especially the ones that we contribute to open source. And so Knative is one of the places where we're currently running experiments, yes. And, and how does it look as a, as a technology? I think it's at the stage right now where when you talk about the wars, <laughs> like technology wars, so there are, there are people on the Knative side and there are people not. And so I think it's, it's early, but I think that we are at a place where we are at an influencer stage on it. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty confident that it can get to a place where it can become part of our portfolio. So you, so you think it's legit. So you think like this moving an auto scaling layer to the open source world, you know, the, the K native belief set that there is no function as a service. There is no container as a service. These two things are the same along a gradient you believe this this may be the reality it could be it could be so you know uh, certainly amazon has a very strong perspective on on serverless and containers and i'll tell you that this is certainly one of these places where i think it's too early in the game to make any type of specific choice of what in fact is what we want to lean into and you know when we think about standards at intuit we we talk about it as fixed flexible and free and so, you know, fixed is there's exactly one standard and thou shalt use it. <laughs> uh, flexible is just a couple things to choose from. And free is, hey, engineers, go out there and, you know, ch- go change the world. And so I think this is something that certainly we don't know enough about to declare one way or another in terms of do we think that this, this exists as a spectrum or is it a little bit more of a, of a fixed paradigm? We're actively running experiments to figure that out. It's really cool that you do that because I think it you know you could just as easily say yeah look we we're just going to sit out and wait for like the managed version of all of this how do you ass- like assign resources to what is essentially like R&D or kind of like platform engineering experiments or I don't know under under what part of the balance sheet you would put that <laughs> the engineering balance sheet yeah, so you know, one of the things that Intuit does very explicitly is is manage its investment as a portfolio, and so we understand how much are we spending on growing the business, how much are we spending on building the future of the business, and how much are we spending on technology hygiene. And included in hygiene would be like futures and and experimentation. And so. We have entire teams whose responsibility is just to think about tech futures. In fact, one of them is called tech futures. But then there are also sub-budgets for many of the, of the infrastructure teams to be constantly evaluating what's new and to be figuring out how should we be evolving our stack. And so we're, we're really passionate about trying to deliver the best possible development environment for our engineers. And so... In order to do that, we want to make sure that we're we're on top of this. And so, so this, you know, started with Taylor Stansbury, who was the the uh, CTO of Intuit for the past ten years, and now certainly continuing on with Mariana uh, Tessel, who's the CTO starting in January, uh, where we make sure that we invest to be a very healthy technology company, and the investment to be a very healthy technology company means sometimes you're spending money on tech simply to be better at tech. 
which will then pay huge dividends in delivering the technology to deliver experiences and services to our customers. And so it's a really hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to justify. There is no, if this isn't like a, a direct equation, you know, the, uh, X equals A plus B, right? It's, 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 there isn't a clear causal relationship that you can show. This is kind of just the experience of engineering leadership, the, the ability as, as technology leaders to communicate with the business side of the house and to say, hey, listen, we, gotta, we have to invest some of this to continue to be a healthy technology company. But in general, Intuit knows this. Uh, Intuit as a company, it's one of the, like I said, one of the reasons I've been around for 20 plus years or to 20 plus, almost 20 years, is that it's co- Intuit as a company is constantly reinventing itself. There's no reason why Intuit, the desktop software company, should have become Intuit, the SaaS company, except for the fact that we disrupted ourselves. And actually, the business gave itself permission to cannibalize the existing customer base with the new product. And when it comes to technology, we have to do a similar thing. And so that, that kind of portfolio management goes on. Do you also do like a 20% time thing as part as part of the like bottoms up speculative investments? Or do you just kind of say, look, like the core product is, is so, uh, we have so much to do in the core product. Let's just kind of like when it comes to new features and new stuff, like let's kind of keep it, you know, in a, in a product, let's sequester that in, in the product development side of things. Also, cause your data is kind of sensitive. Maybe you don't want people like really hacking on, on uh, 20% style projects in, in a kind of data sensitive environment. How does that fit into your, your speculativeness? Yeah. So, I mean, we, p- part of our, just to make sure where, where, where you're going on this. So part of our budgeting process is specific time for engineers to work on hygiene, to, to make the systems better. And then we also have engineering events, like a, a week-long uh, engineering events, where basically we tell the engineers, go do something cool. And there's almost no constraints. And you know the constraints are things like, well, you have to have consented access to customer data. Like you can't, you can't go access customer data. You can build an experience or a service, release it to production that requires a customer to consent access to their data. We're very good at generating mock data that looks like customer data, but is not if you want to build these types of things. But, you know, we, we're we firm believers that our engineers need to continue to hone their craft. Software engineering is a craft much more than almost any other type of engineering activity, right? If, you, if you're an engineer designing bridges, you generally don't go in your backyard and build test bridges too much, right? And yet as a software engineer, in order to stay current and up to date and on top of things you need to constantly be honing your craft and so we try to make sure that there are activities and time in place that the engineers can hone their craft to to become better engineers to learn new software languages to learn new technologies and these innovation events these these engineering for lack of a better word hackathons are are great ways to do that Awesome. This has been a really interesting conversation. I want to end on just kind of a far-flung question. What is an Intuit product that you wouldn't be able to build today, but might be possible in 10 years? Boy, that's a really good question. So I think what it really comes down to is the data that we talked about, that uh, Intuit as a company is, as we are becoming more and more of a a platform and data company where we use the experiences that we have to collect data on behalf of the customer 
And to be clear, we have very, very strict data stewardship principles. And number one in the data stewardship principle is it's not our data, it's the customer's data. But once we do have that data, our ability to derive insights for those customers is ever-growing. For example, our ability to predict cash flow for small businesses is ever-growing. You know, one, one, one specific example of something that we released actually last year, which will give you an idea of the kinds of things that we can do in the future, is that there are a number of small businesses. So one of the biggest problems that small businesses, early small businesses have, is they don't have the capital to grow. So what do they do? They go to a bank and they don't have any kind of track record. So the bank, unfortunately, can't lend to them. But with the data that we collect through QuickBooks, through the financial transactions from their bank and through the transactions that they put into QuickBooks, we've developed models that allow us to assess risk at a rate better than what the financial institutions can do. So we have started creating a micro loans, direct lending to small businesses. So much so that the banks now are saying, that's great, can we get in on that too? And that is just the, the smallest sliver of the type of insights that we can build on top of the data that our customers have allowed us to steward on their behalf. And so in the future, you can think about things like uh, financial uh, or cash flow projections so we can allow our customers to make decisions that are weeks ahead of time. So they can make decisions before they run out of money to actually not run out of money. And that could be true about a small business who has a big order coming in and understanding how much inventory do they need to acquire and therefore what implication does that have their cash flow. That include families who are trying to understand what order do I pay my bills? How do I make more money? As the world becomes more and more of a gig culture, how many hours should I work at Uber to actually be able to pay my bills this week? Those are the types of projections and insights that we can provide in the future that we can't quite yet do today, but it's, it's definitely right around the corner. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Yeah, it's been great talking to you too. Wow.